So we're in a series now. Uh, we're looking at, um, okay, think timeline with me. When, when uh, Jesus is crucified on what festival? What's the, what's the Jewish festival? Passover, okay. Now, does anyone know what, what comes 50 days after Passover? And it's in the number. Penta, Pentecost, okay. 50 days later is Pentecost. And so we're looking at these 40 days that are like somewhere in between there. Pentecost is, this is, this is their celebration, the Jewish celebration of the receiving of the law at Mount Sinai. And Pentecost, this is when Jesus sends the Spirit, and there's this amazing fulfillment of the Holy Spirit, the baptism or the infillment of the Holy Spirit on the church that is in a different way than it's ever come before. And so we're looking kind of at these, like I said, 40 days, somewhere in the middle, uh, after his crucifixion and resurrection, and then starting on Easter, like uh, these 40 days leading up to that. Um, and so this series, looking at these moments, and uh, Jesus, during these 40 days, he, um, he appeared at intervals to his followers. And there's not one exhaustive list of all of the appearances. We see some in the Gospels. We see some mentioned by, by Paul, but there's no exhaustive list. Uh, the earliest ancient account that we have of these appearances actually comes from Paul. His letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians, he wrote that before the Gospels were written. So this actually predates in terms of its writing. 1 Corinthians 15, um, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now what's interesting is that phrase, and uh, that's a technical rabbinic phrase of saying this is sacred history that I'm passing on. This is something that I've learned. There were a number of people uh, in the New Testament letters you'll, you'll read about them. They're called servants of the word. Paul's one of those guys. There are other people called servants of the word. This was a technical term for people who put uh, sacred tradition to memory, and they would go around like teaching. We, we have people who, who put on plays um, Max McLean is a guy, and he has whole sections of books memorized. He has like parts of C.S. Lewis's books memorized, and he goes to different cities and he, he puts it on. He would be a servant of C.S. Lewis, you could say. This was a job, it was a role that people had. And so this comes from what would have been early oral history. And he says, This is what I passed on that I received. I didn't make this up, I'm passing it on. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and to the twelve. And that's what historians tell us, that was this ancient, earliest text, or uh, creed. And then he goes on to write, after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And then he says, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep, which is to say, you can go ask them. The, the, this is verifiable. There are accounts of this. He said, then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother, uh, and then to all the apostles. So we're looking at a couple different moments. We, we looked at Jesus intersecting with these two disciples who are going to Emmaus. Do you remember that? A couple weeks ago. Um, and they, it says that their eyes are kept from seeing him. And there's this really unique uh, encounter that he has with them. And then last week we looked at he appears on the Sea of Tiberias on the beach. And he cooks breakfast for them. And he has this really interesting uh, interchange, especially with Peter. Kind of reinstates him. Uh, Peter had done something to disown Jesus in public. And so Jesus reinstates him in public so people know that. And tonight what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very last appearance uh, we know it's the last because on the heels of it, we, we read of Jesus' ascension into heaven to, uh, the language that's used in Scripture is, sit at the right hand of the Father. And so if you have um, your, your Bibles, you can open to the book of Acts or turn them on on your smartphone or whatever. Uh, the text is inside your bulletin. So it's Acts chapter 1. And um, this is the, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke He's also writing this account. This is like part two, and he says that at the beginning. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, 
Theophilus is probably um, his sponsor, the guy who's paying for him to do the research and write. Uh, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was, there's a phrase, taken up to heaven. This is after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, meaning the cross, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And remember at times he shows up and he actually says, hey, hand me some of that food. <laughs> and it's probably not that he's hungry, but he's displaying, look, touch me, I'm physical. Uh, this is not some uh, vision you might be having or a ghostly experience. He, he's giving hard, solid evidence. This is a physical bodily resurrection. It says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. That's what we're talking about. And spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, when he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He says, do not leave Jerusalem. But Because remember, the appearances are some in Jerusalem, some up north, like 70 miles north by the Sea of Galilee. So here they're in Jerusalem. Uh, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised which you have heard me speak about. And then he mentions John the Baptist. And if you've ever read the Gospels, John had a phrase that was the opposite of this. Uh, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So John had said when he was baptizing at the Jordan, he said, I baptize with water, but one is coming after me who's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to like take off his shoes and wash his feet. But he's gonna baptize you not with water. He's gonna baptize you with with fire and with the spirit. So this is Jesus now claiming that. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he kind of gives them a bit of a rebuke here. He said to them, it's not for you to know. Remember, he's already said this numerous times. No one knows, you won't know the time, <laughs> but they're still asking. Um, uh, it is not for you to know the times or dates. The father has set by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And verse 9 says, after he said this, he was taken up. That's the second reference to this taken up. Before their very eyes, and a cloud hit him. Sounds familiar. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? It's kind of similar to that. Um, hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, third reference, will come back to you in the same way that you have seen him go. Now here's a question I have for you. If, 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 uh, if you were to try to summarize the teachings of Jesus, like his message, in one sentence. Um, or, or, or maybe take one of his teachings, like a memorable thing that he said, you know, and, and, and kind of say, I think this is sort of the core of Jesus' teaching. What would you say? What would you say is like, this is his message? What do you think? Thoughts? Came to seek and save the lost. That might, that's pretty good. What else? Say that again. Okay, things about heaven that he might have said about being with the Father. That might be sort of the essence, the core of his message. Um, you know, what about like a John 3.16, right? For God's love the world, maybe that's the core of his message. Um, forgiving your enemies. Um, the golden rule. What's that? Serve one another. Serve one another, Yeah. It's really interesting. Now, here's why this is so interesting. What you think of when you say, I'm going to try to encapsulate Jesus' teaching into one thing, what you think of reveals your assumptions. It reveals your assumptions about, this is what I think Jesus is really about. It, it kind of tells you and it tells me, this is what I really think who Jesus is and what he's all about. And um, what's really interesting is three of the four Gospels actually do the hard work for us. They answer this question for us really, really clearly. Um, all the three of the four Gospels, when they summarize Jesus' message, they, they do it, in fact, 
the first words that they put in Jesus' mouth when he first speaks in those three gospels. You know what it is? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or is near or it's, it's, it's here. Repent because the kingdom of God is here. It has arrived. And notice how Luke here, he summarizes it in the exact same way. Go back and look in verse 3. So um, Luke is going to give shorthand for what was it that Jesus did during those 40 days. Like, what was he doing? He did, he did a lot of teaching. How, how would you summarize it, Luke? Look, what does he say? He spoke about what? He spoke about the kingdom of, of God. Um, <clears throat> now, according to the Gospels, Jesus is not just a moral teacher. Um, the Gospels are much more interested in portraying him as a prophet in line with the, the Hebrew prophets <clears throat> who, who, is, who is heralding that God is doing something, that history is coming to a climax, and it, it has to do with justice and salvation and the phrase is kingdom of God that's used here. <clears throat> now, what's really interesting is um, cultures have... Uh, like grand narratives, every culture. Every culture has like a driving narrative that, that sort of makes them think, oh, this is, this is what life is about. Like one of, one of our driving narratives in the West is moral progress, right? I mean, that is. That's, that's one of our cultural driving narratives that, that we're, we're progressing morally, moral reform, moral reformers. And so we oftentimes kind of try to tie Jesus onto that grand narrative where we can. And that's why most of our culture, how does most of our culture see Jesus? He was a, he was a good moral teacher because <laughs> that's the Western grand narrative of moral progress. Problem is that was not Jesus's narrative at all. Jesus's driving narrative was the covenant story of God with Israel and that the world was coming to a climax by the coming of a king and that king's rule. That was Jesus's grand narrative because he, he was influenced by the Hebrew scriptures. That's their narrative. And so this idea of kingdom comes about. Here's one of the hard parts initially is um, <clears throat> in English, when we say kingdom, we tend to think of a place, right? Like the United Kingdom, right? We tend to think of like a location, and not a whole lot. There aren't many kingdoms left, but, but that's what, in, in English, that's kind of what it's come to be. In the Bible, both in Hebrew and the Greek, the word for kingdom doesn't, I mean, it assumes a place, but it really has more to do with activity. Um, it has to do with ruling. Uh, like, that's, that's what a king does. A king rules. Um, like, for instance, you know, we say things like, um, okay, a runner runs, a biker bikes, Right? They don't have a word for, like when they say a king kings, like that's what they would say. That's what a, a king kings, that's what he does. That's what she does, a queen queens. <laughs> that's, that's what they do, but it has to do with activity. Um, in fact, that's why uh, some scholars that I like, uh, for instance, one guy by the name of N.T. Wright, when he translates the uh, gospels, he, he always translates the kingdom of God into the rule of God or the reign of God, because he says that's really getting at it a little bit more accurately than our concept, this archaic uh, King James concept of kingdom. And so the rule of God or the reign of God, it's the theme that runs from like page one, when I, when I start right here, uh, page one, all the way to the second to last paragraph in the last book of the Bible. Um, listen to the very first place where ruling and reigning comes about. It's like page 1, Genesis 1, 27, we, we read this. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28 said, God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, Subdue it, rule. It's interesting. He says, rule, rule over it. Humans have this royal task we read about right in Genesis. And this is really unique. 
Like in the ancient world, uh, you go to the ancient world of the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Assyrians, kings were, were thought to be in the image of God. They, like literally divine, you know, they would use that exact phrase, they're made in the image of God, but not the average person. It's only pharaohs and things like that. Scripture makes a really interesting comment. It says, all humanity is made in the image of God. Uh, take a look at Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 is a poetic reflection on Genesis 1. Okay? And listen to how the, how the psalmist reflects on this. Psalm 8, 4 says, What is mankind that you are mindful of them, God? Human beings that you care for them. Like, we're just, we're just dirt. You know, we're breathed into dirt, according to Genesis 1. And he says, you've made uh, them a little lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You have put everything under their feet. It's a picture of sitting on a throne. Crowns, ruling chairs under, under your feet. This is image of God. And back in Genesis 1, 26, when God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule and have dominion. See, the way that God has chosen freely, chosen to set up his world, is that he wants his reign, he wants his rule, he wants his will to be brought about through human beings. Isn't that interesting? That's how he's chosen to make this world work. I mean, think about it. Think about the stories in the Bible, okay? Um, the Exodus, okay? Um, the parting of the Red Sea. Remember that in the Exodus? If you've seen the movie, maybe at least. Um, if you were an Israelite there watching it, okay, what would you have seen? I mean, God's parting, but what would you have seen? You would have seen Moses standing there with his staff over the water, right? God works through the actions. He has chosen to work through these sub-creators, these image bearers of God, human beings. He's given them royal tasks. And he says, my will is going to be done on this earth, but it's going to be done through you. I'm choosing to partner with you. Wow. That, that's why he's saying, what are we that you're mindful of us? You've made us rulers? He made his kings and queens in your, in your good world. And see, the God of the Bible has freely chosen to primarily work in this world through image bearers, through human beings. It's interesting, the, um, in the Hebrew, the word for, you know, made in the image of God, image is the same word that's used for idols later. Like, don't make an image of God. It's not interesting. And many scholars have, have, as they kind of talk about this, think about this, they say, God tells Israel, don't make an image of God. And yet he made an image in chapter one. <laughs> but he says, don't make an image of God because I've already made one. Wow, you. You're this image bearer tasked to rule God's creation. Amazing, amazingly elevated, royal, sacred task of embodying God's rule. Now, think about this. If you had just read Genesis 1 and 2, okay, this is, you know, God's established this beautiful creation, packed it full of potential, created these rulers, and he said, draw out as much as you can from it. Go, right? You're free, run. Okay, so God's rule is on earth through human beings. If you had just read Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and then you turned over to the Gospels, Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark or Luke or whatever it might be, and Jesus shows up on the scene and he says, um, repent for the rule of God is at hand. What would your question be? <laughs> Wait, what happened? His, I thought his rule was there. Right? His, his rule was there. It was, through, it was through humanity. Something terrible must have happened. Because see, when Adam and Eve rebel against God, they do so in order to assert their will, their rule, but not under the rule of God. Their own untethered will. They, they kind of created their own little kingdoms. There's, a, there's an image up on the, uh, on the screen here. Think about, it, think about it like this. 
this, this circle, or these two circles, the sphere on the left represents um, our space, our rule. The sphere on the right represents God's space. Now, Genesis 1 and 2, these spheres are completely overlapping. There's no break in them. Does that make sense? What, what, what happens is humanity rebels against God, tries to set up their own little kingdom, and all of a sudden this world, God's will is not being carried out because humanity is setting up their own, their own little rule. And so in verse 3, when we read, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. See, Jesus believed that in his coming, that when he said repent, and believe this, this next image. Repent and believe that. What? I'm bringing the space of God. I'm bringing his kingdom, his rule, his reigning to here. Like in this sense, heaven and earth are touching in me. The two spheres that were once perfectly aligned but have been shattered, he says, I'm bringing them back together. And of course, that's the claim of Easter resurrection. He's the first new creation. He's part of new creation. He's not part of old creation. He's very physical. New creation is going to be very, very physical. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be like this in some respects, but beyond this in other respects. Jesus is in rooms, and then he's all of a sudden not in rooms, and, and he doesn't... That's weird. Um, and as the... As the Writers of the New Testament talk about what will our resurrected bodies be like. They say, well, we just got to look to Jesus. He said he's the first fruits. We're going to follow him. That's the model that we go off of. And so the, the, this is unavoidable. Jesus says, this is happening, like it or not. <laughs> you can kick and scream and run to the other dark side of it, but they're going to be fully overlapped. It is happening. And this is why he's saying, Stop. That's what, that's what repent means. Stop and assume everything that you believe is wrong and upside down <laughs> about you ruling your life. Stop. Repent. Why? Because this new creation is invading this old, broken world, and it's going to redeem it. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be better than you ever could have imagined. The kingdom of God is so central to what Luke is claiming that Jesus is all about, like the center of his message, that he even literarily wants us to see it. He starts the book of Acts by saying in 1.3, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Go to the very last words in the book of Acts. And what does he say? These are the last words. Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. That's it. He's saying this is how it starts. This is, this is what the church is about. This is what we are, I am, about, I am supposed to be about, the rule and the reign of God in his good world. And all throughout the, this, this book, it constantly says, um, Acts 8, 12, but when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 19, 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, 25, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone out preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Acts 28, 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening, explaining about the kingdom of God, from the law of Moses and the prophets to persuade them about Jesus. Um, once you see this, you can't unsee it. Once you realize that the core of Jesus' message is about establishing the rule and the reign of God, all of a sudden it's like, man, that was all over the place. Like, what? That really is everywhere. All throughout the Gospels, this is, this is the shorthand way of saying this is the essence of Jesus' message. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew has about 30 pages in it, depending on how big your text is, I suppose, your font. Um, about the kingdom of God appears about 1.5 times per page, 50 times in the Gospel of Matthew. It's riddled throughout. This is what Jesus is all about. Now, 
oftentimes we can think about this and go, I, when I hear someone talking about establishing a kingdom, um, we kind of are resistant to that, right, in the West, you know, the idea of kind of bringing about a religion. Uh, I mean, do we know of religions in our world today that are about that? It's the idea of bringing God's rule and you submitting to that rule. It, 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 it can feel very oppressive, right, especially if there's like, money tied to it and that sort of thing. We, we, we kind of read that, ah, the, you know, the, the rule of God. But what you have to realize is, the question is, what kind of rule is it? You think about when Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, the rule of God, things that he said. Like, who's the most important one in his kingdom? <laughs> you know, he said things like, if you feel like you've got a lot to offer and really a lot to teach people, and uh, you're, you're actually the least in my kingdom. I still love you, but you're the least. You get a lot to learn. <laughs> um, if, if you're sort of an outsider, you're, um, you're in the background, you're, it's not about you promoting yourself. He says, oh, those ones are actually the first in my kingdom. He said things like, um, when, when someone does something harmful to you, you bless them in return. You know, go to the book of Matthew and read his Sermon on the Mount. That's his description of, here's what life in my kingdom looks like. And when you read it, I promise, it feels so counterintuitive. Like, it feels like, it's almost like, Jesus, are you standing on your head? Like, you got everything upside down. You got everything. That's not how power works. And it's, it's really bad advice if there's no resurrection. It's really, really bad advice. You know, um, someone slaps you, let them slap the other side. You know, it, I, I don't like a lot of what's in there, to be honest with you. Like, it grates against how I am. <laughs> and, and yet that's the kind of kingdom. It's this sort of like inverted upside down kingdom. Dallas Willard talks about it this way. He says, when you, when you first come to Jesus, he seems like a nut. He seems like a guy who's standing on his head. But what you realize later is, oh, the whole world is standing on its head and he's the only one standing upright. So that's why when we come to Jesus, we talk about this upside-down kingdom. Man, your kingdom looks really screwy, like really upside-down. But then he invites us, and he says, well, well, try it. Try to let your yes be yes and your no be no tomorrow. See what that does. <laughs> See what following Jesus looks like. Okay, so Luke establishes that in Jesus, the rule of God has broken in. This sphere has come in contact with this sphere, and, and it's unavoidable. It's, it's going to keep happening. It's going to over, new creation is going to overtake. So he's, he's established that. But then what's really interesting in verse four, he, he ties a key concept that without this, the whole kingdom thing, rule thing doesn't work. Take a look in Acts uh, chapter one, verse four through eight. We'll read this. Just we'll read the most of the rest of the passage. We read that on one occasion, uh, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift that my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, for John, the baptized, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then he gathered around, I'm sorry, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore, now, what do they say? The kingdom to Israel. Notice what they've just done. Notice, notice the language. You're supposed to contrast their statement. What's the last time the word kingdom appeared? Right above it. The kingdom of God, and they immediately go to the kingdom of Israel is, is what they're asking. What, what rule are they thinking about Israel? And in that rule, see, they're going to assume that they're going to have power, right? How many times in, in the Gospels do we see Jesus' followers saying things like, uh, Hey, Jesus, who's the greatest? Um, remember James and John, their mom came to Jesus? This is a good Jewish mom. And she came to Jesus and, and was like, hey, uh, when you're in your kingdom, can my two boys, like one on the right, one on the left, you know, kind of, you know, like that sort of thing. And he's like, you have no idea what you're asking. So their whole concept of the kingdom was about power, right? It was about status, this concept of, of power, and so that's what they want to know. Who's the greatest? Look at how he responds. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. Oh, good, here it comes. That's what I've been waiting for, power, right? When the Holy Spirit comes on you. Huh. 
That's not what I was thinking. And you will be my witnesses. Witnesses to what? What's the core of Jesus' message? The rule of God has shown up in Jesus. That's what you're going to be my witnesses about. Um, they, they're thinking, is the kingdom coming to Jerusalem? And what's he thinking? In Jerusalem, perfect. And in Judea, oh. And in Samaria, I don't like those guys. And to the ends of the earth, I definitely don't like those guys. It's a way different picture. Like even, even at the ascension, Jesus, they have such a screwed up view of what God's rule means. It's so off. And what I would suggest is if they can walk with Jesus for three years and hear him talk about the rule of God like every day and not get it, is it possible that you don't get it? Is it possible that I don't get it? That I still don't fully understand the rule of God, his reign, like me. <laughs> what does that mean for, for me to be in his kingdom, for me to be in his rule or under his reigning? What exactly does that mean? So we're told in verse two that Jesus gave these instructions through the Holy Spirit. And that introduces us to a key concept about what it means to be a follower of Jesus about what it means to be the church. And that is that every activity a follower of Jesus engages in, ministry, service, work, doesn't matter, whatever, every activity absolutely depends upon the work of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely depends on the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think we so often forget that. You know that, that last song that we were singing in worship? Uh, help me, it's, what's the language? Help me become more aware of your presence. I think was, a, was a, a phrase in the song. That's what that's saying. God, help me to be aware on everything I'm doing, every phone call I make, every email I send, every conversation I have, every project at work, of your presence. And not just you're there, but what the Holy Spirit's supposed to do, and that's where he goes with a little bit further here. Think about the initiating act. What began, what was the event that sort of jump-started Jesus' public ministry. Remember where he was? Yeah. He, he walks down south to the Jordan River, just south of the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee, and his cousin, John, has started a Jewish um, reform movement. Um, he's asking people to, to get baptized, to walk into the waters of the Jordan, kind of reenacting. You remember when Israel came into the land? What did they go through last? Yeah, they passed through the Jordan River into the land. And so this is a recommitment action. God, I want to enter the land in, in the right way. I want to have a pure heart. Would you wash me clean? So John has started this reform movement. He's extremely popular. He was actually very, very well known. had numerous disciples, much more popular than Jesus was at this point. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus writes more about John the Baptist than he does about Jesus because he saw John the Baptist's movement as significant. And Jesus comes there, and John, we're told that John... He knew he didn't know he was the Messiah, but that God had told him, here's how I'm going to let you in on it. As you're baptizing all these people, one of them is going to come into the water, and you're going to see the spirit, the personal presence of God, descend on him in the form of like a bird. And that's how you're going to know. And so apparently his, oh, hey, Yeshua, his cousin, he baptizes him, and then he sees it, and he realizes, you're the one. You're, you're the one. That's how Jesus' ministry starts. And the Spirit of God rests on Jesus and infuses Jesus so that every second of Jesus' day, every day of his week and every week of his year, he lived dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Perfectly dependent. I don't do it perfectly. I do it, I'm like on and off. <laughs> he was walked in perfect obedience to the Father. The book of Hebrews says he was like us in every way except without sin. His will was perfectly submitted to the Father. He showed what this is what it means to be truly human. And, but he did it not by his own grit, not by his own will. That's, that's what humanity does. I'll do it by myself. He said, I'm going to do it in perfect submission to the Holy Spirit. 
And so that's how he starts it. And just like we talked about last week, remember we said, you know, Jesus said, my mission is now your mission. So how is that going to be possible? Same thing, the Holy Spirit. That if I do not have the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, it's, it's going to be a train wreck as I try to do ministry or life or relationships. It's going to be an absolute train wreck. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is what he says. I'm going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, the, this reference to baptism, picture, uh, the Greek word is just baptizo. It just means to submerge. It's like if you're going to wash a cup, you would fill up something with water and you'd baptizo it. You just stick it in there and clean it all off. It's this, it's this idea that of being fully, fully covered by something, immerse, immersing into something. And so then the question becomes, and has been the question of church history, is so when does that take place and how, right? We're not going to solve that tonight. Um, but as you probably know, much church debate has happened over this idea of what does it mean to be submerged in the personal presence of God, this act of um, spiritual baptism. And there, there are different views that different groups of Christians, you know, what one traditional evangelical um, explanation would see that when you become a believer, when you convert, when you give your life, to, that you are infused fully, you're baptized into the spirit. Other evangelicals would say, well, there's conversion, but then there's a separate, usually a later act of being baptized in the spirit. Not water baptism, but being somehow more fully um, submerged in the Holy Spirit. Certainly, if you grew up in like a Wesleyan tradition church, the emphasis on spirit baptism is about holiness. It's the idea that I, I'm, that I know that I experience the spirit baptism when I have like full heart life sanctification. There are uh, charismatic and Pentecostal groups of the church who emphasize the power to witness and then these, these sign gifts that come as a result, like speaking in tongues. There were certain evangelicals like uh, D.L. Moody. You've probably heard his name before. R.A. Torrey. They emphasize that the, the spirit baptism is about being empowered uh, for service and witness and care for others. There were um, others. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a... Was a great Christian man, and he, he said, I think, I think baptism happens, but I think it has to keep happening. I, I get filled, but I leak, and so I kind of have to keep getting refilled by the Holy Spirit. Some of the Puritans emphasize that baptism of the Holy Spirit is a sovereign act, and that's when revivals break out in communities, and so we are to pray, baptize us afresh in the Holy Spirit, the Puritans would say. So what do we do with all these different interpretations, right? A fight. Let's have a good fight. Um, no. Um, it's, there's not a ton of clarity exactly about how you enter this baptism of the Holy Spirit. But there are a couple things that we can all be certain of. And that all followers of Jesus, this would be mere Christianity, we would all hold to. And that is that baptism with the Holy Spirit implies a full-on experience with the Holy Spirit. This idea that not um, I'm a follower of Jesus because, you know, mom is, or I'm a follower of Jesus because I come to church two, sometimes three weekends out of the month, or I'm a Christian. No, that I've had a personal transformative experience in my heart. Now, I might not know when it happened, but that I have given my life over to Jesus and asked for him to come in and regenerate. Remember Jesus' words when he talked to this guy named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader? And he said, unless you're born from above or born again, you have no part. And he was puzzled by that. What, what does that mean? He's talking about that experience. We, we can also know, and all Christians, all Christians can agree with this idea, that being filled with the Spirit, it's mandatory for Christians it's not an optional package that you take on. It's essential. It's at the basis of it. Paul makes fullness of the Spirit mandatory in Ephesians 5.18 because he gives an imperative. He says, be filled with the Spirit. 
See here, and here the result of being filled with the Spirit, it's like true heartfelt worship of God. It's interesting, the early church, they, they knew it was absolutely essential. When they first assigned deacons, if you, if you read the book of, of um, Acts chapter 6, basically they have problems with like dividing up food among like the Greek widows and the Jewish widows. And so they say, we need, we need people who can do this rightly. And, and what they said is that um, they, they actually showed that uh, being filled with the spirit, what was a mandatory experience for all deacons, you're going to be splitting up food and trying to be just and, and, and be impartial. You have to be filled with the spirit. And so he says, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. That's interesting. Are you known to be full <laughs> of the Spirit and wisdom? Uh, we will turn this responsibility over to them. Any guesses who the very first person in the Bible were this phrase filled with the Spirit of God? There's one, there's one guy, the very first person. You can use this at like a party this weekend, a little, little Bible trivia, make people think you're weird. Uh, the very first person in the Bible who is said to be filled with the Spirit is um, this guy, Exodus chapter 31. The, the temple or the um, uh, tabernacle is being built, and there's this guy named Bezalel. Anyone here named Bezalel, or middle name? Okay, it's kind of a funny. I wasn't going to make fun of it if someone was named that. <clears throat> so listen to what we read. Then the Lord said to Moses... See, I have chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. For what? Listen to what he says it's for. To make artistic designs for wood in gold, silver, and bronze, filled with the Spirit of God to cut and set stones, filled with the Spirit of God to work in wood, filled with the Spirit of God to engage in all kinds of crafts. Wow. <laughs> Now, being filled with the Spirit means more than this, but it doesn't mean less than this. And here's what I would ask you is, when was the last time you sought God to fill and empower you for some tasks that you have at work or things, maybe a project that's coming up at school? Are you approaching your relationships with like, you know that difficult family member? You know who I'm talking about. Are you approaching those relationships with a deep recognition that you have to have the Holy Spirit's power before you make that phone call, before you guys get together on Thanksgiving, before you see him on the weekend? Are there people in your life who, don't, who, who, who maybe aren't following Jesus themselves? And are, are you regularly asking God to empower you to appropriately and tactfully have boldness about your relationship with Jesus. So much more could be said about this. We're like scratching the surface, but we've got to go on here. So take a look at uh, verse nine. There's this, there's this weird part here about being taken up. And there's, there's more to it than I think we, how we tend to read it. It says, um, after he said this, Jesus, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up to the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him, men of Galilee. They said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, what is going on here? This seems weird. Um, the point is not for you to think of this as like an extraterrestrial abduction, like he just goes you know, like going up sort of thing, or that he's like going into outer space. <laughs> That's not at all what Luke wants you to see here. Luke is alluding to Daniel chapter 7. There's, this is a picture again, heavily in the minds of Jewish people. Do you remember the most common phrase that Jesus used for himself as far as a title? Anyone know? The son of man. It's the most common phrase that Jesus used for himself. So he always, the son of man, this, the son of man, that. Read the gospels. It's the most, that's how he refers to himself, the son of man. So he's referring to Daniel chapter seven. Listen to Daniel seven thirteen. Daniel has this vision. He says, in my vision at night, I looked 
And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, notice where he's coming to, though. Because we tend to think of it from our perspective. He's coming from the, on the clouds. That means he's coming to us. But he says, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Oh, he's actually, he's not coming to us. He's, this is from the perspective of the ancient of days of God. That he's coming in the clouds before the ancient of days in his presence. And it says, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion, ooh, his rule, that's a cool word is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom huh, is one that will never be destroyed. And if you doubt that Luke really had that in mind, go back to something Jesus said. This is in Luke 22. Remember Jesus is being tried by the religious leaders. He's gonna be crucified here shortly. And in Luke twenty two sixty six, we read, At daybreak, the council of the elders, the religious elders, the people who were trying Jesus, of the people, both the chief priests, the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us, right? Plain, give it to us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. <laughs> and if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And they asked, are you, are you the Son of God? Are you this Daniel 7 character? And he replied, you say it. You say so. You say I am. <laughs> and he said, we don't need any more testimony. We have it from his, from his own lips. They tear their clothes because you've just you know, committed one of the most horrible things is making yourself equal with the Father. He's claiming to be the one who, who is coming before the Ancient of Days on a cloud and receiving honor and glory and this name that's above every other name and giving given total authority. King made a ruler. Twelve more places in the New Testament speak of Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. This is what I'll just read like two to you. Romans 8.34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Ephesians 1.19, the power of the Holy Spirit is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. See, Luke is presenting Jesus to us not anymore as Rabbi Jesus or even necessarily prophet Jesus. This is King Jesus. And I'm talking like on a cosmic level. <laughs> this is cosmic King Jesus. King Jesus is the cosmic ruler. And what he says is, and I want to rule you with my kingdom. It's really different. It's not what you think it is. It'll probably take you a long time to figure out what I mean by my rule. But I want you to step into my kingdom. I want you to step under my rule. And see, in this passage, Acts 1, we see how God's reign, his kingdom, and God's spirit intersect. And like these disciples of Jesus, Jesus calls you, he calls me to apprenticeship. He calls me to, what's, what are the first words that Jesus said to his uh, disciples? Follow me. Same words he says to us. <laughs> Follow me. Like every day. Like I have to, I have to rehear that and respond. Hey, Brent, Thursday morning, follow me today. Be my apprentice. Learn from me. I'm the master craftsman. And if you enter my rule, if you allow my reign over your life, it'll go in a surprising direction. And it'll, it'll look upside down at times. It'll be hard, but my yoke is easy. My burden of ruling, it's light. And necessarily, he wants to infuse you with God's spirit in order to shape you into the human that he's designed you to be, like the one that you, know, you wish you could be. <laughs> it's his spirit that comes in and starts changing internally. So here's what I would ask is, will you take seriously 
as we, you know, we're going into our summer here, this is our last night together, will you take seriously God's rule and reign for your life, like this summer, as you, you know, you're going to be doing a lot of the same things, maybe some, some other things as well, but are, are there things in your life, maybe it's sexuality, maybe it's your marriage, maybe it's uh, your, your singleness, maybe it's with your, your money, the things you have, whatever it might be. And if you stepped into the rule and the reign of Jesus, here's my question. If you stepped into that, like all the way, baptism, baptizo, all the way, if you stepped into that, would there be things that because of the Holy Spirit's presence, he would want access to? I think there would be for me. I think there would be for me. I don't know how these things are, are hitting you, but I trust that the Holy Spirit will reveal those to you. And over these next few minutes, I would ask you to put yourself in a posture as we take communion this evening, put yourself in a posture to say, Father, I need your infusion by your Holy Spirit. I need him to delve into areas of my life that have maybe like been closed. Maybe I didn't even know they were closed off, but they've just kind of been closed off or maybe tell me what those areas are. And I want to bring all of my life, everything, all of it, under your reign. Like, help me do that. Because I know tomorrow I'm going to take a few things back. <laughs> so help me, help me resubmit to your reign and your rule everything that you want to put your hand into, that you want to work on in my life. And communion is a great time to do it. We're taking the elements, the body represented by the bread. Jesus' shed blood represented by the cup. And this, this is the ultimate picture of, you know, we, we consume these elements. We put them inside us. And maybe tonight, maybe that's just a picture for you of saying, God, I want you to be fully inside me. I want you to be like fully empowering me. And so as you do this, be sensitive. Ask God to uh, evaluate, to assess as, as the... Uh, author first john says determine if there's any like yuckiness in me anything any yuckiness point it out so during this next song i'm gonna ask you to go to one of the um four tables uh, allergen free at the very back one we've got i think four other tables around the room if you're a follower of jesus take one of these um go back to your seat stand in the room wherever you want in your own time take it and then would you re-engage in the song of worship and then we'll close in prayer let me say a prayer over our community as, as we go out before we meet again, okay? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would go before us. Thank you, God, that you also go behind us. You hem us in all sides. Lord, I pray that this summer would be a time of seeking your son in apprenticeship to him. Lord, that each one of us would experience the infusion of the Holy Spirit regularly in our lives and that you, God, would make us more into the image of Christ and in so doing that we would find our true selves in him. Father, we pray all of this in his name. Bring us back together safely in the fall. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen.